Good morning, everybody. Can you tell I look relieved and happy, right? Oh, I really am, because yesterday we found out that one of the young men in our church, he, he disappeared. And so uh, we, we prayed about it last night, and we were concerned, and Cheryl and I and Natalie were out looking for, for Jordan, and he's here this morning. So he was found about 1 o'clock after being missing for about 12 hours yesterday, and it was on the news and all these kinds of things, and I actually texted our pastors last night and told them, I said, if, if, if we haven't heard anything on Jordan by morning, I said, we're going to get the church, and we're going to launch this huge, we're going to do this search, we're going to, a search party, we're going to send out a search party, I figure if we could send out 500 people, we're surely going to find them, but God took care of him, and God brought him home, and we're just so thankful, Jordan, we're so glad you're back. And, and safe and sound with your, with your mom and dad. So anyways, I want to open up our time in a word of prayer. I, my heart's just full, just so grateful, so thankful that he's okay. And uh, I'm going to ask God just to bless uh, our time today as well, okay? So will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much. Our, our, my heart, I know that those of us who are familiar with this situation, I know for, for mom and dad, we're just, our hearts are just overflowing with gratitude to you. God, for taking care of protecting Jordan as he went on a little journey, God, and we're so thankful that after 12 hours, I know he must have walked a long way, but you protected him, you cared for him, you watched over him, and you brought him back to his family and to us. God, we thank you so much for his life, and we, we pray, Father, for your blessings and favor to be upon Jordan, that he would grow in, in, in your image in every way, every single day, God. Thank you so much for his life, and Father, Father remind him every day of just how much you and, his, and our family, uh, we all love him. And Father, thank you so much for our time together this morning. What a beautiful day it is, and how good it is to be in the house of the Lord where we can hear from you. God, we're so thankful to know you. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for Jesus. And this morning I pray that your word would come alive to us in a way that it hasn't been before, that it hasn't done that before. And I, and I pray, God, that it would, it would stimulate our minds. It, it would ignite our faith. I pray that it would inspire our hearts to be in every way the people that you want us to be. So thank you, Father. I pray that you'd speak through me Use me, stir in our hearts today. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed recently, but the news that's been coming out of Israel has been pretty fast and furious. Just two months ago, the Times of Israel published a story with this headline. I want to put it up here for you. It, it read, Iranian air chief, colon, we're ready for the decisive war that will destroy Israel. Destroy Israel. Story was about how the commander of Iran's air force is preparing for war against Israel, and this came on the heels of a book that was written by the Ayatollah Khomeini, who is the supreme ruler of Iran. He wrote a book, this book here called Palestine, not too long ago, and and in this book he detailed his plans for how to destroy Israel. Now this prompted. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to go before the United Nations with book in hand to condemn it and to condemn what the Ayatollah said about wanting to destroy Israel. And then you might recall that I mentioned about three weeks ago that this headline appeared in the United Kingdom's Express, Daily Express, and it read, World War III, Turkey's Erdogan calls for army of Islam to attack Israel on all sides. 
And the article cited an article in a Turkish newspaper called Yeni Shafak, in which the president of Turkey, Recep Erdogan, called for the formation of a 1.2 million man Islamic army to wipe out Israel. Now, to accomplish this feat, according to the article, and I didn't share this with you two weeks ago, but according to the article, Erdogan has appealed to the 57 nations belonging to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which has a membership of more than a billion and a half Muslims, to join forces, to unite forces, to destroy Israel. More recently, last Sunday, in fact, a week ago, rockets were fired from the Gaza Strip at Tel Aviv in, and landed just north of Tel Aviv in Israel. And then on Tuesday, more rockets rained down on Israel, this time in Ashkelon. And you can see this from this map here. There's, there's, Tel, there's the Gaza Strip on the very lower left-hand side of Israel. And then the rockets that struck Tel Aviv and Ashkelon. So they're striking into the heart of, of Israel. Um, Israeli army blamed Hamas, the Islamist, uh, Islamist uh, militia that controls the Gaza Strip for the attacks. And then the other day, in fact, it was on Thursday, 150 Palestinian students uh, firebombed Israeli soldiers in the West Bank. And this was an actual photo taken of the firebombing. And there were more in, um, in the West Bank that was taken by Reuters. And if you go back to that map, Tina, you'll see the West Bank on the right side of Israel. You see that Israel is a very small nation, but on the right side, you could see the outline uh, there of, it looks like a peanut, uh, and that's the West Bank. Let me tell you a little bit about the West Bank. The West Bank from 1948 to 1967 was controlled by the Jordanians, by the nation of Jordan. And then it was taken over by Israel after the 1967 war. The West Bank is known to the Jews and to us as Samaria and Judea. That's where Judea and Samaria are located. We read about that in the Bible. That would be the West Bank. Bethlehem, which was the birthplace of Jesus, is located in the West Bank. And although the West Bank is occupied by more than 2.8 million Palestinians, it is occupied by Israel. In recent days, there's been an uptick in tensions uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians in the West Bank. And then on Thursday, the Jerusalem Post reported that according to the Palestinian Authority, an upsurge in tensions could lead to, quote, an explosion, unquote, an explosion of violence in the West Bank and a new intifada. So that's kind of what we're facing. That's kind of what's been coming out of the Middle East just recently, it has been fast and furious. So church, I would say to you, church, keep your eyes on Israel. Keep your eyes on Israel because they are in the crosshairs. And every event that has to do with the last days and the end times will revolve around Israel. It'll happen right there. See, much of what we know about the events of the last days comes from the New Testament comes directly from Jesus' words, his writings, his words extensively about the last time spoken in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. It also comes, our knowledge of the end times also comes to a lesser extent from the writings of the Apostle Paul and from the Apostle Peter. And then it comes to us, a very large extent of it comes to us from the writings of the Apostle John that are found in the book of Revelation. In fact, 17 of the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation have to do with the last days. That's 75% of the, that last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, 75% of it has to do with the last days. What you may not know, 
What you may not know is that the Old Testament has just as much to say, if not more so, has just as much to say about the last days as the New Testament does. It has a lot to say. The Old Testament is packed with prophecies concerning the last days. Well, two weeks ago, we began a series here called Jesus B.C., in which we are looking at Jesus as he's revealed in the Old Testament. And I hope that one thing has been very clear to you in our study, and that is Jesus is present in the Old Testament. He is very much present in the Old Testament. In fact, he is the theme that runs through the Old and New Testament. He is the common denominator in the Old and the New Testament. But today, I want to take you to one of the most remarkable passages in the Old Testament regarding the last days that gives us a stunning view, a stunning, spectacular view of Jesus. So if you brought your Bible, turn to Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah chapter 12, and you can also look at the scriptures on our South Bay Community Church app. If you don't have it, go to the, you go to the the Play Store, and you can download it, the App Store, and download it. You can also look, hopefully you received the Baywatch, that's our program. And uh, inside there's a sheet in there with all the verses that are listed there for you as well. Now I want to start by setting the table for you, Zechariah chapter 12. I want to set the table for you, give you the background, the context, because that information is very helpful to us in understanding what's going on here. Zechariah was one of those rare individuals in the Old Testament who was both a prophet and a priest. He was both a prophet and a priest. Now, a prophet was someone who spoke to the people on behalf of God. Prophets spoke to the people on behalf of God. A priest was someone who spoke to God on behalf of the people. I hope you see the difference. Zechariah did both. Zechariah was both a prophet and a priest. He spoke to the people on behalf of God, and he spoke to God on behalf of the people. Although he was a Jew... Zechariah was born in Babylon. Babylon is where modern-day Iraq is located today. He was born in Babylon. How did he come to be born in Babylon? Well, his parents were there because in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, invaded Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem, and took tens of thousands of Jews hostage and deported them to Babylon, including Zechariah's parents. And that's why Zechariah was born in Babylon. Now, 47 years later, 40, fast forward 47 years later, and Cyrus the Great is the leader of Persia. Persia is where modern-day Iran would be located today. He is the leader of Persia, and Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king. He, was, he died several decades earlier. But the conquest by Cyrus the Great uh, of Babylon meant that all those Jews that were living there in exile in Babylon, all of them, including Zechariah, were now subjects of Persia and no longer subjects of, of Babylon. In other words, there was a new ruler in town, a new ruler in town, and that was actually good news for the Jews because one year later, after Cyrus became the new king, there came to power, he did something extraordinary. He let the Jews go. He let them go back home. He allowed them to return home to Jerusalem. And the first thing the Jews did when they returned home to Jerusalem was they decided to rebuild Solomon's temple. That beautiful temple that was erected by King Solomon that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded Jerusalem in 586 B.C. They decided to rebuild the temple. But almost immediately they got pushback. And there were people who said, we don't want that temple. We don't want that temple. 
And so they dropped their plans and the project came to a grinding halt. The temple wasn't built. Well, God wanted the temple to be built. That was his temple. So 16 years later, God commissioned Zechariah and another prophet named Haggai. He commissioned them, spoke to them and says, I want that temple. And so it stirred within them and they went and spoke to the people and they said, let's build a temple. Four years later, the temple was complete. And now the Jews, they resisted the pushback. The temple was finished and now the people were back in Jerusalem. They have their temple. They were pretty satisfied and pretty happy. Zechariah then spoke the word of the Lord to his people. He spoke, spoke the word of the Lord to his people and he encouraged them. Don't forget God. Don't forget God. Remember God. Remember what he did for you. And he reminded them as well that one day the Messiah would return. One day the Messiah would show up, their Messiah. And his words are memorialized in this book that we call Zechariah, which bears his name. Now, one other thing that's noteworthy to remember, very important to remember, that Zechariah was written by the prophet Zechariah 500 years, 500 years before Christ was ever born. It was written 500 years before Christ was born. When we come to chapter 12 of Zechariah, what we have here is an astounding apocalyptic vision of the future. Zechariah has been referred to as the apocalypse of the Old Testament, just as the book of Revelation has been referred to as the apocalypse of Jesus. Bible scholars have said that Zechariah is the most apocalyptic book in the Old Testament. Let me just read the first verse for you, and we'll kind of get started here. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. Take a look at it. It says, the oracle, of the, word, the oracle of, the, of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Okay, this, has, this whole chapter has to do with Israel. Thus declares the Lord. In other words, God is speaking. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Can you stop right there? All right. The first thing that I want to do here is point out to you the two focal points of this chapter. There are two focal points. The first one is the Lord. So circle the Lord, the oracle of the word of the Lord, circle Lord, thus declares the Lord, circle Lord. Notice it is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Anytime you see the word Lord appear in all caps, it is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which means, which refers to the self-existent God. So this is God speaking, this is Yahweh speaking, this is Jehovah God. God is the focal point of this entire chapter because God is the one who speaks throughout this chapter. The second focal point of this passage is Israel. It is referred to or represented by Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. Jerusalem is everywhere in this chapter. If you take a look at your Bibles very quickly, the word Jerusalem appears in verse 2. It appears twice. And again, in verse 3, it appears there in verse 3. It appears in verse 5. Jerusalem is mentioned twice in verse 6. It's mentioned in verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 11. Zechariah, Zechariah mentions Jerusalem 11 times in this chapter. 11 times and it is the focal point, the second focal point of this chapter. And that's because Jerusalem was the capital of, of Israel. It is God's city. Again, you need to, to know all this as we study this. It's, it was God's city. And it was King David who first recognized that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel 
when as king, he reigned in Jerusalem for 33 years because he said that was the capital. 1 Kings 2, 11, I'll put it up here for you, says, and the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned for seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So he reigned for 33 years as king in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. After David died, his son Solomon became the king. Solomon built the temple, which Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. But when Solomon built the temple, he told the people of Israel what God said to his David about Jerusalem. Take a look at 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, right up, right up here on the screen. He said, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. I chose no man as principal prince over my people Israel. Verse 6, But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So it's very clear. God said, I have chosen Jerusalem. I've chosen Jerusalem to be my city so that my name might be there. And then centuries later, centuries after Christ came, he affirmed what was spoken here by God. Jesus said in the, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. All right, it is the city of the great king. So Jesus said, he affirmed what was said about Jerusalem earlier. Jesus said that Jerusalem was the city of the great king. So it is clear from scripture that Jerusalem is God's city. It is God's city. This reminds me of a story that was told by Dr. William Varner, who was a Bible professor at the Master's College. He told a story of the prime minister of Israel coming to the Tummington, Washington to visit the president of the United States. When the prime minister of Israel walked into the Oval Office, he immediately noticed that the president had three telephones on his, three phones on his desk, a red one, a white one, and a blue one. And he says, Mr. President, I noticed you have three telephones on your desk. What do they do? He says, well, the president said, well, the red one is a hotline directly to Moscow. Moscow. The white one is a direct hotline to London. And the blue one is a direct hotline to God. And so the prime minister asked him, well, do you use that blue one very often to talk to God? He says, I don't use it very often. It's because it's long distance and it's very expensive to make those calls to God because it's long distance. The prime minister then told the president that he too had three phones on his desk there in Israel. He said the red phone, it was a red one and a white one and a blue one. He said the red phone was a direct line to Paris. The white phone was a direct line to Cairo. And the blue line was also a direct line to God. And the president asked the prime minister if he used the blue line to God very often. He says, the prime minister replied, I use that every day. He says, I call God many times a day. Well, the president was surprised and he asked how the Israeli government could afford long distance calls to God. It must be so expensive. The prime minister replied, it's not expensive at all to call God. You see, in Jerusalem, it's a local call. You see, there's something very special. There's a very special connection between the Lord and the city of Jerusalem. It is God's city, which explains why for thousands of years, everyone has been fighting against Jerusalem. Everyone is opposed to Jerusalem being the capital of Israel because that's what God wants it to be. 
And as I said to you a couple of weeks ago in another message, the devil opposes anything and anyone that God favors. If God says Jerusalem is my city, well, the Satan, that's all Satan needs to know. And he'll go after Jerusalem, keep Jerusalem from becoming God's city. If, if God says these are my people, that's all the devil needs to know. And he'll go after those people because they're God's people. And by the way, so today there's this, there's this staunch global opposition to recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And by the way, barring any unforeseen circumstances in November, about 35 of us from our church are going to Jerusalem and to Israel. And I understand there are a few more spots that might be open. If you're interested in joining us on this trip, please let us know on your Connect card and we'll get back to you. Today, Jerusalem is divided into four uneven quarters. There's the Muslim quarter, there's the Christian quarter, there's the Jewish quarter, and there's the Armenian quarter. And even as I speak, the fight over Jerusalem is intensifying. It is ramping up and one day... It will come, according to Zechariah, it will come to one big climactic head. Now let's take a look at what Zechariah had to say about all this. Starting again, take it from the top, Zechariah 12, verse 1 through 3. We'll take the first three verses. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Okay, you can stop right there. Let me unpack this for you. Grab a pen, all right? Grab a pen, and I want you to underline a couple things for me. And verse 2, underline, make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Underline that. Make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Also in verse 2, underline siege of Jerusalem. Underline the siege of Jerusalem. And then in verse 3, underline a heavy stone. Underline a heavy stone. And then at the end of verse 3, and this is the key. This is the one I want you to really focus on. Underline all the nations of the earth will gather against it. All the nations of the earth will gather against it. Now let me start with the last verse first, okay? The last verse first. The, the phrase here at the end of verse three, all the nations of the earth will gather against it, is the heart of the passage. It is the heart of the chapter. That's, this is really the, the crux of it all. Zechariah prophesied that one day all the nations of the earth would gather together to attract Jerusalem, a full-scale attack against Jerusalem. It would also attack Judah, which is the area surrounding uh, Jerusalem, which would be part of uh, Israel. And so what's pictured for us here in the opening verses of Zechariah 12 is the siege of Jerusalem. You, I had you underline that, and you can fill that out if you'd like. This is the siege of Jerusalem. That's what we see here, the siege of Jerusalem. Now, when Zechariah shared these words with the Jews, that all these nations were going to gather together to attack Jerusalem, imagine, it had to throw them for a loop. Uh, it probably sent them spiraling into a depression. Again, think about it. They had just returned from a life of exile in Babylon. They just got back. They were just getting their lives back in order, just putting things together, rebuilding their homes. They just rebuilt the temple. And now Zechariah was telling them that they were going to be tacked all over again. He was telling them it's going to happen one more time. This was devastating news for them. 
And this time it would be different. How would it be different? Well, first, here's how it would be different. First, it would be different because this time, this next attack would be different because it wouldn't be just one nation that would attack them. It would be all the nations of the world that will attack them. It is going to be worse. It is going to be worse. Zechariah described the coming attack on their city in bleaker tones, uh, in, uh, bleaker tones two chapters later. Take a look at this, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2. Flip over two chapters, and here's what he said. More ominous tones, he said, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. See, according to Zechariah, this new assault... Will happen, which will happen in the future, will be unlike anything that they've ever seen. It's going to be un, unlike anything they've ever seen. And actually, this was not the first time they had heard this. Because 50 years earlier, approximately 50 years early, God spoke a very similar prophecy through uh, the prophet Ezekiel. He said something very similar. Take a look at Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 8 and 9. Ezekiel said, In many days you will be mustered, in the latter days, you will go against the land that is restored from war. What, what land that would be? That would be Israel. The land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the nation, upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance. Here's the key, verse 9. You will advance coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land and you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. You can stop there. So Ezekiel prophesied five decades earlier that one day all these nations would come together. They would all come together and they would descend upon Jerusalem like a storm, like a cloud covering the land. And again, as I said, this was not the first time Zechariah's people had heard such a terrifying prediction. They had heard it five uh, decades earlier. And then if you fast forward into the future hundreds of years, the Apostle John confirmed what Zechariah and Ezekiel prophesied. Here's Revelation chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. John wrote, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the dragon is the devil, and out of the mouth of the beast, that would be the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that would be the Antichrist sidekick. Three unclean spirits like frogs. It wasn't, they weren't frogs coming out of their mouths, but they were spirits like frogs, and these would be demons. And verse 14 says, For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And it says, verse 16, And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. You see, John wrote that one day, there is going to be a satanic army. It is going to be a demon-inspired fighting force that will gather, that gathers together the whole world. And they will gather, all the nations that will gather at a place called, in the Hebrew, that's called Armageddon. In the Greek, it would be called Megiddo. And all these nations would gather, and one day all these nations will attack Israel. The same, this is the same battle that's pictured for us in John, in Revelation 16 by John. Same battle as we see, as we see in Zechariah and Ezekiel. All referring to the same, same war. One day, all these nations are going to gather together in Megiddo, in Armageddon, and they're going to attack Israel. That's what's going to happen. That's the prediction. And if you weren't aware, Megiddo is a vast plain which is located in northern Israel. It looks like this. This is Megiddo, or Armageddon in Hebrew. 
And it, it is going to be one of our stops in November when we're there, assuming that there's no fighting going on, right? We're going we're gonna to go there. We're gonna, you're going to get a chance to see this for your own eyes. Historians have said that Megiddo, the plain of Megiddo, has been the site of more battles than any other location in the entire world. And it is going to be the... And it is one day it is going to be the site of one final war. One final war will take place from this location. And it will be the, the war to end all wars. And it, and it will culminate with the, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Everyone gathers to, to destroy Israel. And in fact, instead, Jesus will come. And all his glory on the clouds, he will come. And he will destroy the enemies of Israel. And I believe that what we're seeing today, and in those headlines that I uh, read to you, and the things that we're seeing, on, seeing in, in the Middle East, I believe that what we're seeing today in the news concerning Israel is simply the prelude to, the, to Armageddon. It is the prelude. These are the, what you're seeing are the seeds of Armageddon. You're seeing the beginnings of Armageddon. This is not Armageddon yet. This is, this is, this is nothing yet. But we're inching closer. Every day we're inching a little bit closer. And what you're seeing when they, when they talk about gathering all the nations, when the Ayatollah talks about Gathering, attacking Israel. When, you, when Erdogan talks about getting 57 nations together to attack Israel, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing the seeds of Armageddon. And, um, and so this time it will be different for Israel. This time it will be different because it won't be just one nation that attacks Israel. It will be all these nations that will attack Israel simultaneously. The second reason why it will be different for Israel this time is because God will inject himself into the fray and he will fight for Israel. This time God is going to intervene. And Zechariah uses two metaphors to describe how God will intervene. The first is found in verse 2. Take a look at verse 2 again. I had you underline it. It says that he's going to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. He's going to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Now, in the Hebrew, again, this passage, Zechariah was written in Hebrew. So we look at the Hebrew language to see what some of these words really mean. And in the Hebrew, the word cup is not an actual cup as we think of a cup. The actual Hebrew word means, it means a, a basin or a bowl. So it's larger than a cup, first of all. And then the Hebrew word for staggering is the word drunkenness. And so this verse, in this verse, Zechariah likens Jerusalem to a potent cocktail that fills a basin. And this potent cocktail is one which everyone will be made to drink of. All the enemies of Israel will be, will be made to drink of it when they attack Israel. And this, again, it's speaking figuratively, not literally going to drink out of this bowl. It, it's figurative, and it will leave them staggering and tottering. The enemies of Israel will be, be left staggering and tottering like a drunk. Again, this is not a literal portion, potion. It is a figurative one. All that to say that when Israel's enemies attack Israel, they will be left reeling because God is going to intervene. And then the second metaphor that Zechariah uses for Jerusalem is a heavy stone. We see that in verse 3. I had you circle that. It is a heavy stone. And all those who lift it will, will be hurt themselves. And the word hurt there in the Hebrew means to cut up, cut to pieces. It's not like we think of hurt, like I hurt my finger or I hurt my toe. It's, it's not like that at all. When those, when those who are hurt in this place, it means to be cut to pieces. The implication is, is that all those who try to put a hurt on Israel will themselves be hurt. They will be slashed to pieces by the Lord. So what we see here is the Lord standing up for Israel. We see him fighting for Israel. And you can write that one down. He is standing up for Jerusalem in this passage. And we see more of it in verse 4. So take a look at verse 4. On that day, 
declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, but for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. And on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. In other words, what this is saying is he will strike every horse. Now again, these words are written centuries ago. So he's speaking uh, metaphorically of, of the, the attacker's weapons of warfare, perhaps like armored vehicles and tanks and even planes and ships. Uh, if this said, I will strike every tank and every F-16, the people back in Zechariah's day would have said to him, what you talking about, Willis? Right? What are you talking about, Zechariah? What on earth is a tank? What is an F-16? We've never heard of such a thing. All right, so when he talks about horses, he doesn't mean literal horses because no one, no armies fight on horses anymore. They got the most sophisticated, we got the most sophisticated weaponry imaginable. So he's speaking metaphorically here. And then in verse 6, it says that he will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot of fire. This is so good. You know, in ancient times, a fire pot was a container. It was a, could be a metal container. It could be a clay container. And it would be used, uh, it would be used to, to warm pe- people up. It would, it would carry fire, basically. The container would carry fire. And it would, you could use it for warming. You could use it for cooking. You could even use it as a weapon of, of war. And the Lord said he was going to make Jerusalem like a pot of blazing fire that would devour, devour its enemies. I mean, how would you like to be like a blazing pot of fire the next time someone gets in your face? You know, all you need to do is, and this fire comes out of your mouth like Godzilla, and they'd be toast. Well, that's kind of what's pictured here, that Jerusalem will be a blazing pot of fire, and it will destroy and devour the enemies around it. And then take a look at verse 8. It says on, in verse 8, On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. Now this is so good. I love this part. This, I love this part. I especially like the part where it says the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. Do you remember what David was like? He was fearless. He was courageous. He was this young kid. And he was this huge giant named Goliath. And all the armies of Israel terrified of him. But David wasn't afraid. With a sling and a stone, he vanquished Goliath. He was courageous. And so this says that the Lord says that on that day, on that day when the attack occurs, when all hell breaks loose, when all of Israel is freaking out, And they're at their wit's end because the enemy is descending on them like a storm and a cloud. The Lord said on that day he would make the feeblest and the weakest and the wimpiest among them. That would be me if I'm there. He would make them like David. They would be like David. He will grant them the courage of David to stand firm and stand strong. In other words, when they are weak, then they will be what? Strong. Right? When they are weak, then they will be strong. How great is that? 
How great is that? Let me ask you something. What are, what are you up against? What storm clouds are hovering over the horizon in your life? And how's your attitude? How's your disposition when problems arise? Are you a man or a mouse? Are you afraid of flying? Are you afraid of cockroaches? Seriously, what strikes fear in your heart? Are you afraid of losing a loved one? Are you afraid of that new round of cancer treatments you've got to start this week? Are you fearful of having that difficult conversation with your spouse or your children? Are you afraid you won't pass that huge exam that you just took? Are you afraid that you might not make rent this month or you might have, not have enough money to retire on? Are you afraid that you might never get married, find a mate? Afraid that you might never have children? Are you afraid for your child's well-being? What keeps you up at night? You know, in January, my wife Cheryl went to Guinea. As you know, I, I've shared this with you. She, she went to Guinea in West Africa. And that kept me up at night. It really did. You know, I'm a worrier. I know it's a sin to worry. But I was worried for her. Uh, I worried for so many things. You know, I was worried because uh, it was only uh, Cheryl and Annie Mason, two ladies going on this trip. Bless Annie's heart, but she's not Captain America. And uh, I would have preferred that my wife had gone with Captain America because I was worried that they would have to fly from LAX to Dubai for 17 hours, and then they would have to fly another 12 hours from Dubai to Conakry, which is the capital city in West Africa, capital of um, Guinea. And then they would have to drive for 10 hours in a car. 10 hours to go 12, uh, 200 miles, that would be 20 miles an hour because the roads are so bad. And so I was worried for, for her. Uh, it would take them 39 hours to get to their destination, not including the layovers. And so my mind, when she, was, when she left, my mind started to race and I started to worry, and what if the plane has mechanical problems? What if the car breaks down and they're attacked by hyenas? What if she gets bitten by a baboon? What if she walks into the river, the water, and she's attacked by, by piranhas? What if she gets sick for eating a chimpanzee? I mean, all these irrational, all these irrational, ridiculous fears consume my mind. It was like a storm cloud uh, in my life, and it zapped me of my joy, my spiritual vitality. And then one night, I'll never forget it, I think I was driving home from church, thinking about dinner for the girls. We were still eating, eating here at the church, uh, thinking all kinds of things because of, of our renovation thing at, at the kitchen and everything like that. And as I was driving home, God spoke to me. I mean, I didn't hear an audible voice or anything like that, but God spoke to me. It was as clear as day. And here's what he said. He said, I can do a better job of taking care of Cheryl than you can. I mean, it was so unmistakable. I can do a better job of taking care of her than you can. And as I was driving, I was thinking, you're such a dummy. Why didn't I think of that sooner? Of course he can. Of course he can do a better job of taking care of her than I can because he's God. And he's there. And he's more powerful than I am. Of course he can. So what am I worried about? Yesterday when we prayed for Jordan, 
That was my prayer. God, you can do a better job of taking care of Jordan than his mom can. So take care of him wherever he's at. Take care of him. And after I heard God say that to me, I was fine. I was fine. It's as if I felt the courage of David. Felt the courage of David. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. And all I needed to do was trust him. What about you? What do you need to trust him with? What are, what are you facing? What are the storm clouds in your life? What are you worried about? Are you worried about bills you got to pay this week? It's the beginning of the month and you don't have any finances to pay the bills. What are you worried about? God can do a better job of taking care of you than even you can. Trust him. That was Zechariah's message to his people. That when they are weak, they are strong. That was Zechariah's message to his people that terrible things are about to happen, but, but God will take care of them, so trust him. And finally, this is my favorite part of the chapter, verse 10. This is one of the most, in my view, one of the most incredible verses in all of Scripture. Let me, let me take this apart for you. And it says this, and I will pour out on the house of David, house of David again refers to Israel, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. All right, again, take your pen. I want you to circle the, the pronoun I and I will pour out on the house of David. Circle I, right? Circle I. Who's the I? Well, we established that in the first verse, right? The I is the Lord. We see that all throughout this passage. I, the I is the Lord. The I is Yahweh. It is God speaking. And in fact, in this entire chapter, the entire chapter is the oracle of the Lord. Yahweh is speaking. Yahweh is the I in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 6, in verse 9, and verse 10. He keeps referring to himself as I, I, I. And do you know what we know about I? Do you know what we know about Yahweh? Do we know what we know about God? We know that God is spirit. We know that he's spirit. John 4, 24, put it up here for you, says God is spirit. Right? We know that about God, that God is a spirit. And because God is spirit, we can't see him. Right? God is everywhere in this room, but you can't see him because he's spirit. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1.15, he is the image, the he, that pronoun is a refer, reference to Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. You can't see him. Now, if God is spirit and if God is invisible, and it begs the question, if God is spirit and if God is invisible, how can he be pierced? How can he be pierced? Well, it's impossible. You can't pierce a spirit. You can't pierce what you can't see, the only way that God could, be, could have been pierced was if he had a body, if he had substance. He could be pierced if he had a form. Well, that's exactly what happened, right? Amen. That's exactly what happened. John 1.1, the Gospel of John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. The word was God. And then if you jump down to verse 14, it says, and the word, and the word which was God, 
became flesh. It became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God is spirit. God is spirit, but he became flesh. He took on a human body, born of a human mother, yet fully God. That was Jesus. Jesus was fully God in human flesh. Now take a look again at verse 10. I love this. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, right there in the middle, when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, the me, when they look on me, is also a first-person pronoun. And notice it jumps quickly to him, on him. Him is a third-person pronoun. A third-person pronoun. The fact that the pronouns transition from the first person to the third person means that the one who is pierced, although he is God, he is also personally distinct from God. Get that? He is personally distinct from God. In other words, this is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh, but Jesus is also his own person. He is the Son of God. And when you put it all together, it means simply means that the piercing of Jesus was the piercing of Almighty God himself. God was pierced on the cross. When Jesus was pierced on the cross, when he was crucified on a cross for our sins, it was God himself who was crucified on the cross for our sins. Now let me point out one other thing to you. Notice the third phrase from the end of this verse. Notice the third phrase from the end of this verse. And they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child. Circle only child. Right? They will mourn for him as for an only child. Only child. This is the Hebrew word. It is yakid. Yakid. And it means, get this, it doesn't mean only child. You know what it means, yakid? It means only son. Only son. Who could this possibly have been referring to? Who could this possibly be referring to? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It is Jesus. So here in Zechariah 10, one of the most remarkable verses in all the Bible, Zechariah presents to us the Savior of Jerusalem. He presents to us Jesus. That'll give you chills, right? Chicken skin, the Savior of Jerusalem. So here is Jesus once more in the Old Testament. And Zechariah said that one day all the nations of the earth will gather together to attack Israel and the world will see him. They will see him. They will see Jesus with his pierced hands and feet. They will see him very much alive. They will see him. One day we're all going to see him. Did you know that? Did you know that one day every one of you, every one of us is going to see Jesus whether you believed in him or not, whether you believe in him or not today, one day you're going to see him. You're going to see Jesus. And do you know what the reaction of the Jews will be when they see him? Here's their reaction. They're going to mourn. And they're going to weep bitterly. And they're going to sob. Let me finish it off for you. Starting in verse 11. And on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Ramon. 
in the plain of Megiddo. The Hadad Ramon, Ramon in, on the plain of Megiddo was this place on the plain of Megiddo there, an actual place where it is believed that the followers of the king of, uh, king, of Jos- king Josiah went there to mourn his death because he was killed and he was a, gr- he was a good king and they went there to mourn his death. Hadad Ramon on the, king of, on the plain of Megiddo. And on that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as, the great, it will be as great as the morning uh, for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their, wa- their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by themselves, by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves, they are all going to mourn. Everyone, all the Jews, all of Israel will mourn. They will mourn and they will wail. The enemies. Uh, the enemy on the battlefield, Megiddo, they will, they will mourn because they will lose and they will be judged. The Jews will mourn because they fail to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. When they see Jesus with his pierced hands and feet, they will recognize him for who he was. They will recognize that Jesus was their Messiah, whom they handed over to be crucified, and that's why they will mourn. They will mourn for the mistakes that they made, the mistake and their failure to follow him and to love him for who he was. And so this chapter closes with the sorrow of Jerusalem. You can write that one down. This is the sorrow of Jerusalem. And it won't be, let me just add this, it won't be just Jerusalem that will wail. Here's the Apostle John's take on the same event, Revelation 1-7. Your final verse here. Revelation 1-7, John wrote, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. When Jesus comes a second time, he will come on the clouds with all of his glory, and every eye will see him. Everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, even those who crucified will see him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. John said, everyone on earth will wail when they see Jesus. Everyone who turned their backs on him will, will wail. Everyone who rejected him will wail. Everyone who refused to take him seriously will wail. Everyone who sits on the fence, the spiritual fence, will wail because when Jesus comes on the clouds in all of his glory at the end of the age, it will be too late. It will be too late. And that's why they will wail. For all those, it will be too late to express your faith and oh i believe you now jesus it's too late it's too late and so they'll wail for all those who have believed in the name of jesus for all those who have followed him and loved him all these years it will be a day of rejoicing and celebration unlike no other and hopefully that will be for all of you i don't know about you but i can't wait for that day right? I can't wait for that day when Jesus comes. I don't know about you. I I hope it will be soon. I hope it will be soon. And so all that matters, church, all that matters is that every day we love Jesus. Every day we follow Jesus. Every day we take him seriously. Every, Every day we remain devoted to him and love him with all our hearts. You know, if you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, maybe you're here today and you are f- really far from God. You're far, far, far away from God because you've done some terrible things. 
If you're here today and you haven't taken him seriously, you just come to church and you leave and you, you live your own little life and you do whatever you want to do and then you, you, you put on your good stuff and your good clothes and you come to church on Sunday. If you're a spiritual fence sitter, I have some good news for you. I actually have some good news for you. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for you because you have time to get right with God. So get right with God. Get right with God today. There's time for you. And if you do, and if you will get right with God, and if you will follow him all the days of your heart, and you follow him with everything you've got until he comes, when he does show up, you won't shed tears of sadness, but you'll shed tears of joy and gladness. And what a day that will be. Amen? Let's close our time in prayer. As, we, as you bow your heads and close your eyes, I, I want to lead you in a prayer. But I want, you to, I want you to hear me out. One day, Jesus will come. He is the Son of God. He is God. There is a real God. And one day, Jesus will come in all of his glory. So believe in him. He came to planet Earth the first time to die on a cross for your sins, to give his life for you, to, to pay the punishment for your sin. So give him your life. Trust him. Love him and follow him. Not just on Sunday or not just on Saturday, but every day. If you're far away from God, if you haven't taken God seriously, if you haven't had faith in him, I want to lead you in a prayer. Today, it's not too late for you. It's never too late. It doesn't matter how bad you've been, how far away from God you've been. It's not too late. Today, say this to him. Dear God, please forgive me of all the ways that I've offended you. Forgive me for all of my sins, for all the ways that I have caused hurt, not just to me, but to others. I confess my sins to you, and I ask you for your forgiveness. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you came to die on a cross for my sins. I believe that you are God and that you came here to die and you were raised from the dead. Today, I give you my heart. Today, I express my whole faith in, in you and surrender my life to you. And God, for all those who are fence sitters, who are just kind of lukewarm in their faith, Help them, God, that from this day forward, they will burn brightly for you. Their faith will be like the faith and the courage of David. Help us to live for you. Father, thank you for your word. God, how, how amazing it is. What an incredible passage this is out of Zechariah. And thank you for the promise, Lord, that one day you will come. You will come. We pray that it be in our lifetime. How wonderful that would be. But God, regardless of when that is, until you do, help us to live for you with everything we have. So thank you, Father. Thanks for your word. Thanks for your love for us. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.